1: God will indeed keep us, that is the promise there in that psalm, and in that assurance we come to him to confess our sins with assurance he'll forgive as we come to him in repentance. Psalm 106 is our call to confession this morning, Psalm 106, verse 6, hear God's word. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. As far, the reading of God's word. Scripture shows that one mark of true repentance is when you confess how your fathers have sinned. This uh, takes place. We do this often by looking to Adam and Eve and thinking about what led them to eat the forbidden fruit. Well, here in Psalm 106, we think about how Israel rebelled at the Red Sea. Right after God brings them out of Egypt, Pharaoh pursues and corners them there at the Red Sea. And Israel's response is not to trust God, but to decide that it would have been better to stay slaves in Egypt. You see that in Exodus 14. And we as God's people tend to respond the same way. When times get hard, when we feel backed into a corner or trapped... We're prone to discouragement and despair as well. Our faith and our freedom in Christ is something that we need to work to foster in the face of adversity. God gives us challenges on purpose to to help us grow in trusting him in wisdom, in in working together. And one help that we have is remembering God's wondrous work. That's involved there in Psalm 106. Uh, The abundance of his steadfast love. We need to call to mind. It's another sin to forget it all. But it's a tremendous aid to our faith to see God's goodness and his provision year by year in our childhood, in our marriages, in our friends, in our family, in our church. So let's confess our sins now before Almighty God. Please kneel if you're able and we'll pray the prayer that's printed there on the bulletin Samuel for our sermon text this morning in our series through 1st Samuel chapter 7 we are up to invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them along in chapter 6 last week we looked at the ark being returned to Israel the Philistines uh, partial understanding of what was needed but also partial repentance so we have again today more uh, repentance uh, by uh, Israel this time let's read chapter 7 and let's pray first. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. In your light, we see light, your, psalm, your psalmist says. And so, Lord, we do ask that uh, our eyes would be uh, attentive, attuned uh, to this light. Uh, it's so easy for us, Lord, to remain blind uh, when you shine light upon us. Give us your Holy Spirit to illumine this text for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 7 Hear God's word And the men of Kiriath-jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill They consecrated his son Elizar to have charge of the ark of the Lord From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-jearim a long time passed some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord And Samuel said to all the house of Israel If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us And the men of Israel went out for Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit, year by year, to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we have here a encouraging episode in the life of Israel. And in the bulletin, once again, I usually have an outline. Today I... Uh, put the chiasm in there, that that sandwich structure that I've talked about before. The first and last sections of the chapter are kind of making the same point. And then the next two within are making the same point, and the middle one is is uh, the primary point. So that I'll uh, talk about that at the end. I actually have a different kind of outline, so hopefully I can... Get that uh, across to you without the the notes there. Three things going on in this chapter, and they're they're all kind of nested within what you see there anyway. First, the call to put away idols, right? Serve God alone. Samuel's call to that is the first point today. Second, we're going to see some things about leadership. Uh, Samuel leads Israel faithfully here. And then third, we see uh, the the cultural victory that Israel experiences and how we need to be faithful, whether in victory or in defeat. So those are the three kind of sections here today. Let's begin with putting away idols. In verse 2, we see Israel lamenting after Yahweh, after the Lord. Uh, Israel's lamenting. They mourn the current state of things, right? The destruction of Shiloh, the oppression by the Philistines, Right? They're lamenting, and it's a good thing that they do this because this is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, Good lesson there for us as well in the church with the state of things these days as well, right? Lament is a perfectly appropriate response. And it's gone on for 20 years in verse 2, we see. Uh, In our quick fix kind of culture, we expect repentance to result in immediate change, and now everything's fixed. Right? Uh, TV has trained us in that over the years. After one 30-minute episode, or 60 minutes, everything's neatly resolved, right? Uh, that's that's a kind of a training culturally that we've learned. Well, forgiveness is immediate, right? When we repent to God, we're forgiven immediately. But consequences often remain and linger uh, for, for difficulties. So it, God takes 20 years from the defeat of Dagon in the temple in the last chapter to the defeat of the Philistines in battle here in this chapter. Remember Dagon's defeat is a picture of the resurrection, right? And so is the triumph here, a picture of God's final victory, the consummation of all things. So you have that kind of delay, right? Between Easter victory and the final consummation and glory. That's that's the the uh, delay that we see. We have a delay between our regeneration Right? We come to life in Christ, so we're converted in our souls, but then there's quite some time before we are fully glorified, fully sanctified. Uh, that's kind of the picture that First uh, Samuel gives us here. But the delay doesn't mean it isn't coming. I was reminded of that uh, just this morning. I remembered Second Peter 3 uh, uh, talks about that. Peter uh, talks about those who scoff and say, where is the promise of Christ's return, of his coming? He, he's not coming back. It's, it, it's been forever. He's not coming. And Peter explains how that's not right. God's delaying. But that's not because he decided to give up on the promise of God, of Christ coming again. It's to give us time to repent. It's to give us time to grow in grace before he comes. So that's what the delay of 20 years is all about here. Uh, Put away your idols. Serve God alone. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, we see some actions going along with that uh, statement of repentance. They actually put away the foreign gods. Uh, and they uh, serve God only. And then verse 5, they gather together at Mizpah. So, and they have this service. It's really a service of covenant renewal is what it is. Uh, the people have shown their desire to serve God alone. Now they gather to call on him. Uh, put away your gods. Uh, there's all kinds of things we could talk about about these Baals and Ashtaroth. Uh, the main thing is it's a, it was pagan fertility religion uh, and the, the, the foreign gods were promising them prosperity um, and comfort, uh, you know, good weather so that the crops would grow and so on. Uh, so th- they're serving idols uh, of um, economic security and various things like this. Very much like today, we serve money, we serve sex, there's, there, there's certain idols, things that people chase after. Uh, so it may not have been Baals and Ashtaroth today, that may not be the case, but there are idols that we have and that we are serving. We have to be on the lookout for things that we naturally uh, fall into, naturally pursue. Maybe it's, it's pride in knowing the right things. Or maybe we have a lack of commitment to Christ's church. Maybe there's a, a lack of boldness that, that hits us when the world mocks or marginalizes our faith. Right there, Maybe there, it's a judgmental spirit of, of others in disputable outward practices. There's all kinds of things that we can fall prey to. We have to be on the constant lookout to serve God only and faithfully. In verse 6, the Israelites give up something valuable. And this is a part of repentance often. Uh, here they pour out water. So they go to Mizpah and you know how it is when you go on a trip you make sure you've got enough bottled water along in the trunk right for the for the journey Well essentially what Israel does is they start out on the trip and they've got the case of bottled water and they pour out half the case and, and they say okay Lord we're going to trust you with the rest because and when we repent of our sins it's it's an act of giving up something that's really important to you something that you know you need not going to eat today and here's half of our water because we depend on you. It's a real uh, tangible sign of repentance. It's it's quite striking Uh, it's a sign of repentance and it's something we can uh, learn from sometimes. When we we say we're sorry, how do we show we mean it? Because if we're really repentant, we wanna show the people we're confessing to, we really mean it, and we're not gonna let this happen again. And how are we gonna show that? That's uh, something that we're motivated to do when we confess truly. And that, that's something that we should think of, too, when we come to God in worship and confess our sins. Every week we do this, right? We kneel, we sit again, we hear the, the same words. They can become routine. Don't let that become routine. Rend your heart, not your garments. Right? That, that's a line from, is it Joel? I think it's Joel. And the Jews had a custom that whenever they confessed their sins, they would take a little tear in their clothes and just tear it a little bit more. <laughs> And that's how they showed that they were sorry. We're, we're tearing our clothes. So they would just tear it a little bit more every Sunday, a little bit more. And, and God says, that's, it's a fine custom and all, but rend your heart. Don't just do the, don't just do the weekly thing. Rend your heart. Uh, be cut to the heart. That's what Israel is. And they put away their idols. They serve God alone. So, so much on, on the repentance of Israel there. They, they, they do this. They, they put away their idols. They get rid of them. And then they, they find and they follow good leadership. That's the second point. Israel here follows Samuel. Uh, Samuel's name hasn't shown up for several chapters. Right here in chapter 7, verse 3, is the first time we've seen the name Samuel in a couple of chapters. And that's on purpose. Because they're, they're coming back to him. They're, they're, we see the consequences of what happens to Israel because they weren't uh, listening to Samuel at first. So you see here the impact of a good leader. That's the first point about leadership. Uh, leaders are influential for good or ill. Uh, after 20 years of leadership from Samuel, Israel knows now what to do in trouble. Right? He says, put away your idols and let's go gather at Mizpah. And they follow them, and they do it. This didn't happen back in chapter 4. Remember back in chapter 4 when the Israel suffers this defeat from the Philistines? Their response is, let's go get the ark and bring that to the battlefield. Maybe that'll help us to win. And there's no mention of Samuel. There's no mention of Eli. There's no mention of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're not listening to, to the prophets and the priests of God. They just go get the ark and hope that helps them win. Hophni and Phinehas had been leading instead of Eli at the temple. And that's the result. Leadership has great influence for good or ill. If it's Hophni and Phinehas, uh, you're going to have the ark captured by the Philistines. If it's Samuel, uh, you're going to have a different result. Back then, they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so they were scattered. But here, chapter 7, with a faithful shepherd, Samuel, God's people repent, they're reformed, and they gain the victory. Now we know that's God's sovereignty that does that, not Samuel and his charismatic leadership, but God uses leadership to bring that about. So it's the impact of a good leader. So the first thing that Samuel does is he's an intercessor. Verses five and nine, you see that. He he calls the people together, and he offers the sacrifice for them. He prays for them in verse nine. Samuel's an intercessor. He's, he prays for Israel. He's a picture of Jesus in that way, right? Our ultimate mediator at God's right hand. Jesus prays for us. He, he sacrifices for us. So Samuel's a, a picture of uh, Jesus. Uh, Jesus prays for Peter and for all believers in John's chapter 17, for example. Uh, so Samuel prays for Israel, and so does Jesus. And we can all do this. Right? We, we ought to all be following this pattern, praying for each other, interceding before the Lord for another person. Uh, so uh, I encourage you to take the bulletin home. Use that prayer list that's on the back page. Uh, take the directory and pray through those things throughout the week, praying for one another. Uh, So Samuel's praying for Israel. Uh, He's interceding for them. And again, we do this every week, right? We have this confession of sin time. And afterwards, I usually say something like, your sins are forgiven through Christ, right? Uh, I say that not because I'm some super mediator as the pastor, but because God designs the worship leader to represent Christ to his people, right? You ought to be hearing from Christ himself through my voice, Not because I'm so great, or even because of the great office of pastor necessarily, but because God, he wants to give comfort and help to his people through his other people. You know, sometimes we talk about being Jesus to other people, right? Being his hands to heal or to comfort others. That's the same thing. That's what we mean. Sometimes we're called to represent Christ to others. It isn't just something the pastor does for us, but each of us at times does this. You know, when mom sets a table, when dad comes home from work, uh, when you're kind to your brother, you're being Jesus to others. Samuel does the same thing here. He represents uh, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Uh, He represents the people. He brings them near to God, verse 9. Here you have the sacrifice uh, mentioned. This is really just to give it away at the end. This is the center verse of the text, the sacrifice of the lamb. Uh, Samuel offers that, uh, and he prays for the people. So uh, we know some of this, but this is our covenant renewal service is patterned after this, right? In in confession of sin, in the sacrifice, you lay your hand on the animal and confess your sin. Then the animal dies because the wages of sin is death. That's confession and atonement for sin. And, And then comes consecration. That's what we're doing right now in the worship service. Back then, the whole animal was cut apart and rearranged on the altar and then burned. That's consecration. And, and today, the word of God plays a big part of, in that because it the word pierces even to the division of our soul and spirit and joints and marrow, right? And, and the burning leads naturally to communion where the smoke of the animal ascends to Yahweh. It enters his nostrils. It's a pleasing aroma, and, and communion results with his people, and, and there you have the heart of worship, confession, consecration, communion. Samuel's bringing the people into God's presence. That's what a faithful church leader does. In verse twelve, uh, Samuel here is, is another lesson in leadership. Verse twelve, Samuel takes a stone, calls it Ebenezer, and in Hebrew that means up, up to now God has helped. Until now, God has helped. So, uh, what that does, what the leader is doing there, what Samuel's doing is he's looking back and he's looking forward. Right? He's looking back, saying God has helped. We set the stone up to remember this day of victory. And it's like you like we remember the anniversary of D-Day every year. Uh, that kind of remembering, looking back. And he also says, until now, God has helped. There, there's a there's a sense of looking forward there too. This is something that all leaders do, and it's important to do. Uh, Parents are leaders, parents can remind children when their birthday comes around, you're really growing. This year you did this and this, and you couldn't do that before. And parents help their kids see what's coming. Uh, Now this year there's gonna be this and this coming. Uh, Parents are leaders like that. Presidents are leaders, right? We have State of the Union addresses every year. Uh, which have kind of become a way for presidents to brag about what they've done, right? But the goal is to tell the nation, this is where we've been, this is where we're going. That's what a leader does. I thought this morning on the drive here of uh, Abe Lincoln uh, at the Gettysburg Address. That's what he does, right? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers founded this new nation on this continent. Looking back... But then at the end, he says, the, the, the hope, the idea here is that this government of the people, by the people, for the people, will not perish from the earth. The goal is to keep this going. That's what a leader does. Look back, look forward. Pastors do the same thing. Pastors remind the church of what God has done for them, right? And that's critical for us to remember. That was Psalm 106 this morning. Remember the wondrous things that God has done for you. If we don't remember that, if we forget that, we go off the rails so fast. And, uh, and pastors, church leaders also call the people, uh, they, they say what God is calling us to do in the future. So th- this again, this is leadership lesson. Samuel's uh, doing this. He's pointing the people to what God has done, showing them where they need to go next. And verse 15 to 17, we also get some more leadership from Samuel. Uh, Samuel judges all Israel on the circuit year by year. Which, and he, they mention some towns, right? And that's, that's a good reminder for us of, of leadership. There's, there's a hierarchy. Uh, I, we're not those who are, are full egalitarian here, right? We know we're all created equal. But not everybody has equal ability in every area, right? There are, there are church leaders, uh, who are better teachers than others, for example, right? Better speakers, better administrators, whatever it might be. So there are better and wiser teachers and preachers. Samuel's the one mentioned here. Samuel's the top dog. He, he's the one God has anointed uh, to especially lead Israel well. But there's, that doesn't mean there's no priests, no other uh, teachers in Israel. And Samuel can't be everywhere at once. So he goes on the circuit throughout all of Israel. Right? So uh, one thing he's doing well is he's, he's trying to get to all the people as well as he can. But, but he's one person. <laughs> so there are other leaders as well. Uh, so just like Samuel judges on a circuit, it's, it's good to have intermittent interaction uh, with, with Samuels. Right? Uh, and we know about this. We, we're on the internet. Right? There are certain uh, preachers on the internet that we uh, really like more than others. Right, and there's always a temptation in that to really give more weight to those folks than to the pastor in your local church. We have to watch out for that. I know they're better than me, right? But there's a there's another there's a flip side to that in that I know you better than they know you, right? And that's that's critical. Because I, I, I'm bringing a message that's that's reflecting in very deep and subtle ways uh, the knowledge that I have of you week to week, right? Now that doesn't mean that I'm singling you out and saying, "All right, I'm preaching at you" because I know what your sin is. So I'm going to talk about that for a while. Not like that. It's it's more subtle than that, right? I just, I just we just uh, there's a there's a teaching role that is responsive to to incarnated knowledge of people. So that's that's critical. Um, so we live in community like that. And we're called to love the bride of Christ. And, and we're called uh, to love, uh, as we love Christ, we love his bride. heard a good illustration about that recently, that if you want to have somebody over for dinner, uh, and, and they're married, you, you always invite their wives, too. You, you invite their wife. You, you don't invite them over and say, not your wife. That, that's crazy. Same with Jesus. When you inju- invite Jesus into your life, His bride comes, too. So the way we interact with the church is is critical there. Samuel uh, does all that he can uh, to interact with, uh, to shepherd, to lead Israel. So that's the the second big section today, Israel's uh, leadership lesson uh, with Samuel. And finally, you have the actual battle that happens in this chapter, right? Verse 7, it really heats up. They've gathered at Mizpah. And the Philistines hear that they've gathered, and the Philistines uh, figure that means they're gathering for war, which is quite ironic. Israel's gathering to repent, uh, but when you gather to worship God, there is an aspect of spiritual warfare going on, absolutely. So it's not like the Philistines are totally off base there, but they see a military attack coming uh, when it was really a spiritual act of warfare well, here you see two tactics of the evil one in verse 7. Uh, first tactic of the evil one. He does not wait for your best day to strike. Right? I- Israel is gathered to worship. That uh, It's kind of hard to get ready for battle when you've just gotten ready for church. That, it's kind of off, right? Uh, so Satan will often try to catch you off guard. And, you, and you're focused on this one thing, and he hits you from the side with something else. You have to watch out for that. In another sense, I think, though, that actually they were more prepared for battle because they had repented, because they'd returned to the Lord, right? So there's, uh, there are ways of counter uh, attack against Satan's tactics that the spirit knows better than we But that's the first tactic. Satan will often come at you from a different direction than you're expecting. Second, uh, Satan tries to get you to think that there's something more important than seeking God's face, than worship, right? But when Israel worships rightly, God fights for them. And that's what we learn in this chapter. That's a main lesson here. We need a, a healthy fear of evil to defeat it. True, Israel has shown a fear of God in their repentance and putting away idols, and again, contrast that with a couple chapters ago. Chapter 4, uh, Israel did not listen to God, they did not fear God, but the Philistines did. Remember that? They, the Philistines, uh, the, they hear the ark has come into the camp, and they're like, whoa, this is the same God that defeated Egypt. We're going to have to really fight hard on this one. right?" The Philistines fear the God of Israel more than Israel does. Uh, uh, so this is the key to victory. Those who hear, those who fear the Lord. Uh, So God's thunder uh, thunders in verse 10 uh, after the burnt offering. The Philistines draw near, God thunders. Uh, Back in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Hannah had offered this prayer, right? Prayer of thanksgiving that uh, uh, that Samuel was uh, given. But it's really a wide-ranging prayer. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 2, just a couple verses back. Uh, one thing Hannah has, is praying for is for God to bring down the proud, right? And verse ten, Hannah says, "The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the the power of his anointed." Ah, I missed it. It's the verse line right before I just quoted. Against them, God will thunder in heaven. There's an echo there. Sometimes the Bible does that. It just uses a line, a word or a phrase, thunder from heaven. And next time we see the phrase thunder in heaven is in chapter 7 right here. God thunders in heaven. He's answering Hannah's prayer. He's bringing down the Philistine power, oppressing Israel. Hannah's prayer is about more than just thanks for giving me a, a baby boy. Hannah's praying for God to save the nation, to save Israel. And God answers her. So, Israel being faithful in victory there, recalling, we prayed for this, Lord, and now you've given it, Uh, whether it's a child uh, or a national turnaround. The turnaround comes, verse 13 and 14, territory is regained. Uh, We tend to skip over these parts, uh, but this, this is huge, I mean... Think of China invading our west coast and occupying California and Oregon and Washington State for 20 years. And finally we drive them back out. That's kind of what happens here. It's, it's a huge deal. So Israel is thankful for this. The problem we have often is we tend to seek the victory over the Philistines more than the commitment to the Lord right? We, we want the victory over the Philistines. We want the military conquest. That's, off, that's one of our idols. That's more important to us than turning back to God, repenting, uh, trusting, and uh, obeying him. Obedience does generally bring blessing, but we don't obey just to get the blessing, right? We obey to please God in, its, in itself for his sake, not for the benefits that it brings. Again, this is a mistake religious conservatives can make. We need to turn back to God so that America will be great again. You see the problem with that? that The goal isn't ultimately, the main goal isn't to have our nation be bigger and stronger and greater. The main goal is to turn back to God. That's what we want. That's the main thing. Our highest concern is not for our nation. It's for our God. God doesn't promise your nation will be the biggest and the strongest if you're faithful to him. But we forget that there are many faithful believers in Venezuela, and Greece, and Mozambique. All kinds of nations that are great places, but are places that we think of as less than for various reasons. But God does promise if we humble ourselves, if we turn from our wicked ways... He's going to forgive our sin and heal our land, right? So that there's a clue in that that the blessings of faithfulness go beyond our hearts, beyond our homes. Our land is healed. Well, that doesn't always mean we're going to be the greatest nation in the world, but our, it's it's more than just I'm going to have peace with God. There's going to be a healing in the land, and and that's that's crucial. So here you have in chapter 7 these big moments, like the victory at Mizpah, where you set up Ebenezer. And then there are also regular spells of life, regular seasons, where Samuel goes from town to town, doing his day-in, day-out job. Covenant renewal is weekly, more than this one-time huge event that we see here. And it's crucial to keep both of those uh, in mind. The the regular routine is as important as uh, as the big moments here. We want to look back at the big moments remember what God has done for us. I just saw, I think it was on Facebook yesterday, that today is the actual ratification of the Constitution at the convention. So uh, it was a month after July 4th that all the signers finally ratified it. So today is the official day when our nation was founded, declared on the 4th. But there was a there, there's big moments like that in history in our nation. Where the Constitution is founded, we are now constituted officially. This is the day. There's Ebenezer moments like that that we want to uh, commemorate. Those, those are, that's part of the horror of all the statues coming down today, is we're working against that in our culture these days. No, Ebenezer, consider all the ways that God has helped us in our land, in your family, in your life personally. There's a great deal of spiritual strength to draw from that, it's crucial. Well, let me close with what's actually in the bulletin that I had for an outline. And again, you'll see nested in there are these three things, right? The first and the last point is that Samuel appears. Samuel calls Israel to repent and Samuel leads. That's the beginning and the end of this uh, text. And then in the middle, you've got the cultural threat, the military threat, right, from the Philistines. And God gives victory. And then in the center of it all, covenant renewal in worship. Samuel in verse 9, taking a nursing lamb, offering it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And there once again we see the the lamb of God is offered as a sacrifice. And that deals with Israel's sins. That's the center of this text and that's the center of the Bible. And the victory comes, uh, as 1 John says, that faith is our victory. Faith in what? Faith in the one who, uh, the, the, who bore the sins of the world. So with that, let's uh, consider, uh, people of God, that we are uh, called to be faithful, uh, whether we're in a time of advance or in a time of retreat. We're called to follow, find and follow good leaders. And we're called to repent and put away our idols. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you've uh, given us your word to see in it uh, places, ways in which you have uh, massively helped your people at the Red Sea, here at Mizpah. Uh, Lord, you have uh, thundered from heaven. You have done so most powerfully at the cross of Calvary uh, on Good Friday. uh, You uh, satisfied your wrath against our sins. Had that debt paid and restored, reconciled us to you. Lord, we thank you for helping us thus far. Give us grace and give us strength, for we are so easily uh, focused and honed in on our personal challenges and difficulties. We fail to see your bigger picture so often. We see only looming defeat when you have the resurrection and the glorification coming. So Lord, thank you for the promise of your coming return. Thank you for the promise that the nations uh, will uh, have the knowledge of the Lord uh, as the waters cover the sea. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for uh, uh, being the one to accomplish all of this, for including us in this mission. As your church, uh, we ask that you would give us strength uh, to go forth and bear the gospel to all the nations. Lord, we do this uh, to honor and to reverence uh, the one who died on that cross. And so we pray in his name, the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. And we pray as he taught us to pray as we sing together. Scripture reading for our communion exhortation is just one short verse from John chapter one, where John the Baptist calls to the world and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world." When we worship God rightly, God fights for us. Part of worshiping God rightly is coming to His table in faith. Faith is central to all that we do, and without it, no one can please God. Faith is the victory that overcomes God's enemies. So, how do we worship by faith? Well, we avoid coming to worship, as I mentioned in the message, just out of habit or routine. Instead, we remember, we believe that God has already won the victory at the cross, that he conquered sin and death by offering as our mediator a perfect sacrifice, Jesus' own life and body. Jesus is not only our mediator, he is the sacrifice. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So this bread and this wine remind us, as a memorial... Of that sacrifice they are not another sacrifice but they do make up a fellowship meal of peace so we have uh, confessed our sins God has forgiven us now we gather around the table with no agenda nothing to do other than to enjoy communion with the triune God with father son and spirit so come for all things are now ready these are gifts of God for the people of God We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, as we eat the bread, as we drink the wine, we are acknowledging that we are sinners without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that we are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come with your children and welcome to the Lord Jesus, the body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray.